So hi, my name is Nathan Green. I'm uh, on the medical section of the Royal Statistical Society and I'm pleased to be joined by the current president of the RSS, Deborah Ashby. And today we're going to be talking a little about her, um, how she got into statistics, um, what she currently works on and uh, kind of her ideas and hopes for the future. So Deborah, would you like to kind of introduce yourself a bit of detail about how you got here? Hello, I'm Deborah Ashby and I'm the current president of the Royal Society. My day job is actually at Imperial College where I'm director of the School of Public Health and one of the things I love about what I do with the Royal Society is that many of the concerns are absolutely common. They're about using data for the public good. How did I get into it? Um, I started off from school really enjoying mathematics and being encouraged by my school teachers to do that. Went to university, loved doing math, didn't want to do anything practical. And then gradually I got really excited by what was happening in statistics. I enjoyed it at the academic level, but also I had lecturers who made it clear just how widely it was being used, what the potential was. And I got really fired up by it. So I went away and did a, followed that with a master's in medical statistics at the London School of Hygiene didn't particularly fancy an academic career, wanted to own practical, but I took a summer job at the Royal Free analysing some data there and I loved it. So actually I did go back and do a PhD and I've stayed in academic life ever since, but I've done lots of other things as well, which we can talk about. Okay, okay, great. So you didn't want to be an academic and you've ended up an academic. Absolutely. Okay, so oh, what kind of projects did you start off with? The first project I worked on Actually, the first data I analysed was when I was an undergraduate, and it was Swedish birth data for the 1970s, looking at perinatal mortality rate, which is basically looking at the number of children who die and what causes that, and showing that there was a real improvement in the Swedish mortality data, data showed how it related to their birth weight, their length of gestation. And I had to code that all up myself. I did everything on cards because th that's wow. how we did things in those days and got the printouts. But I loved it and it was really good doing all of this and then finding some really practical messages at the end of it. My PhD, I looked at heart disease in middle-aged men and what I was doing was analysing some of the baseline results from a survey of nearly 8,000 middle-aged men that had been done. So actually what I was looking at wasn't so much their heart disease outcomes because they were still being collected at that point, but I looked at the data on alcohol, how that related to various biochemical and haematological parameters, so basically blood measurements that tell you about how the liver's functioning, um, what the various blood counts are, how the kidneys are functioning. And so effectively, it's looking at what the effects of alcohol are on the body. And there was lots of nice data, but lots of practical consequences. So that was my PhD, what we call epidemiology, which is looking at things which influence the cause of disease. Okay, so, so you wouldn't call yourself a mathematician then, is that right? If you were to break me open, like a stick of South End rock, <laughs> you would find mathematician printed all the way down on the inside. Yeah. At heart I am. But no, these days I use mathematics, but it's not, I haven't pushed it forward. I'm out of practice, but, but it is the core of what I do. Not so much the formula, but it influences the way you think, it influences mm. the logic. So yeah, I, I would not say I'm not a mathematician, <laughs> but I'm doing lots of other things as well. Yeah. Okay, so, um, I mean, I know that you've been involved a lot over uh, many years with the Royal Statistical Society. Yes. So, uh, how did that all start? 
when I was just finished my undergraduate degree and actually the summer before I did my master's I saw a short period of work advertised I think it's what we would now call an internship at the Royal Free so I went along and did that and actually worked on a clinical trial of a cholesterol lowering drug but the person I worked for was somebody called Austin Heddy and Austin by that stage was probably in his mid to late 60s but he had been involved in the Royal Society, he'd been honorary secretary, and he said, you really must join. Now, I'm, I'm young for my, I'm a young birthday, so I wasn't even 21. He said, as soon as you're 21, you can join. And he did. He proposed me, got someone there to second me. So I joined actually really at the beginning of my MSc course, which means I am not too far off having been a fellow for 40 years. Okay, wow. Not this year, but pretty soon I shall be celebrating before okay. the end of my presidency. And it was brilliant advice because what I've gained from the RSS in all sorts of ways has stood me in such good stead. Right, so what kind of interactions uh, would you have with them? Were you going to meetings or...? Yes, so when I was at the Royal Free, which actually has now been absorbed into University College, I was based in London and so we went down to medical section meetings. That used to be the last Tuesday of every month and that was a pretty fixed event in our calendar. I got to know other medical statisticians there. Was the main thing I did, and actually the meetings were at the School of Hygiene, which made it even easier when I was an MSc student at the School of Hygiene. And then later on, I got not roped in, but I, I was asked to join the medical section committee, so I got more involved in arranging meetings. And by that stage, I was up in Liverpool, but I came down to London really quite regularly, and that gr gradually got me involved more in the rest of the life of the Roster Society. When I was up in Liverpool, I was also involved in local groups. It's something that people living in London don't get to attend, whereas people in the regions have these very nice local groups that, again, get, get you together with the other people living in your geographic area. But through the medical section, I got involved in... Oh, we had programme committee which was sorting out the ordinary meeting papers, for example, and gradually through that, as I got to know the society worked, and by that stage I'd probably become an associate editor, for, I think, for Series A and later on for Series C... But when I was approached to say, would you be prepared to stand for election to council, then it seemed a natural evolution. I mean, that didn't happen overnight. That was after several years of one thing leading to another. And would you be on this committee or that working party? Yes. But I loved it because it brought me into contact with the parts of statistics I didn't see in my day job. In particular, people working in the civil service, people working in industry, whether that's the pharmaceutical industry or at places like Ford's. And it gave me a much broader view of statistics, which stood me in good stead, both in the day job, but also much more widely. And I think that's given me the base that's allowed me to, but I'm sure it's led to me being elected president now. And it means that as president, you deal with all sorts of things. But through the RSS, I've at least got some idea of what they might be talking about and who I can go and talk to for advice or to get briefed, because it's not that I know everything, but I kind of, kind of know how the system works now. I mean, actually, my definition of a professional is somebody who knows what they don't know yeah. and has a good idea of where to go yeah. to find out. Yeah, absolutely. And the RSS is great for that. Absolutely. Because it... Well, partly just because it's friendly. I mean, statisticians mm. are, yeah, you know, on the whole, really nice, well-motivated, bright people. They don't have... I mean, some of them have their egos, but on the whole, they don't have as much ego as in some other professions. And they're very happy to refer on if that's the appropriate thing to do. You uh, you mentioned your presidency. So yes. uh, you're well, fairly recently, uh, recently been elected to the 
presidency of the Royal yes. Statistical Society. Congratulations. congratulations. Thank you. So a couple of weeks ago now, you actually gave your presidential address. So what was that like and what were you talking about? Well, the first thing is it's actually took up much more of the first half this year than I would ever have thought possible because you start your presidency. Um, Hayton Shah is our executive director. Yeah, I strongly suggest I did it my first year, which is great because you set out your ideas, but you're doing it alongside everything else. What I did was to go back and read some of the presidential addresses and other things written by statisticians back into the origins of the society. The society is nearly 200 years old. And that was fascinating. I could have spent the rest of this year just reading around that. But what I was trying to do was look for what was motivating the people who set up the society, the early fellows, and then see which of those things had now been solved, which of those things were working their way out. And I was astonished at how many parallels I found, both in the kind of motivation of why they were getting involved, but also actually at a deeper level in the kind of technical problems that they were grappling with. We've got all sorts of computational power now, which changes the scale at which we can do things. But actually, I think those early fellows would recognise what we're doing in the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. Right. So what I then talked about was, I really sort of sorted out, or at least for me, it fell into three themes. One is using data for the good of society, which was absolutely what motivated our early fellows. One was trying to evolve the statistical techniques, methodologies to deal with that. And in its broadest sense, that also includes computing challenges, which begins these days to get us through to data science and so on. But what I found myself thinking more and more is the really important thing, which is why I used it in the title, is actually growing the capacity to deal with that. Because there's a whole sorts of problems that interact. But the potential now is absolutely huge. Unless we've got a highly numerate society with really well-trained people at the core of that, we're going to struggle. So the capacity development, which is what the early fellows were doing, was one of their missions. But I think, for, for, for me, that's actually the biggest challenge we've got to face. And I haven't necessarily seen... I mean, I've always cared about training people. I've taught, actually, since I was at school. I did some tutoring. I've worked with organisations like the National Institute for Health Research to set up training packages, uh, to set up training schemes to bring people in profession but it was only when I was reading and writing and thinking I thought this really is the massive challenge of our generation and I'm not the only one to say that I then found that everyone else is saying that too yeah but that's fine that's probably why it's a good idea yes so in capacity building do you mean in like if we're thinking broadly like data yes. science do you mean like like theoretical knowledge do you mean uh, coding skills do you mean being able to interpret results uh, well, it, what do you mean by capacity building? Or, or that and much more? I mean all of the above. There used to be a sort of idea that a statistician was this kind of person, everyone else was some other kind of person. I think data is now so ubiquitous that different people need different abilities with it. And some of us need different abilities in different spheres of our lives. My analogy that I use when I'm teaching is very much statistics as a language and there are some days that you just need to be able to go into a bar and order a coffee i can do that in italian i can't do a lot more i could probably order the wine oh, yeah. i can understand a little bit of spoken italian because i've spent a lot of time in italy my french i've got a really good grammatical basis and i had a very thorough training at school i can read practically every newspaper article 
yeah, possibly the dictionary for vocabulary, I don't know. Whereas I'm much less practised at day-to-day -day conversation. I, I can manage to a certain extent, I'm not completely useless, but I've never practised that in the way that some of the younger generations seem to be able to go and get stuck in with that, but they've got maybe not such a thorough training in grammar. Now, depending what I want to do, if I were to go and live in France, I would have to get my spoken up for what I do at the moment, actually, what I can do is fine. And I think statistics are very much like that. I mean, I think I actually see the theoretical part almost as the grammar, the bit that unifies, brings it together. Some people are just very practical. Others understand where data comes from. And at different times, we can do different things. So, but if we don't completely upskill almost the whole of society so that people aren't afraid of statistics and that we've got some people who really do understand what they're doing with data, then we're really stuffed. But I don't see it as an either or, that you're either the kind of person that really understands you know, the, the, the nuances of Bayesian statistics and can analyse massive data sets and knows how to do the computation for them, and that other people know nothing. It's, we, we, we all need to learn to talk to each other as well. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree with that. I mean, the, the, the thing that uh, I always say is like when you're at a party and you say that you work in mathematics, yes. some people... And me, I don't know if it's the same with you, they immediately say, oh, I'm no good at mathematics, yes. I can't do mathematics. And I think that's something fundamental that would have to change. Yeah, and I think, to be positive, it is changing. When I was first teaching medical students back at the Royal Free in the 1980s, typically students were coming in with, this is medical students, with physics, chemistry, biology, and not a lot of maths training. These days, when I've taught medical students, they're coming through with maths A level quite often, a further maths AS level. And so there's a generation who are coming through who are much more numerate and much less likely to say, well, I couldn't do maths. And I find that really quite encouraging. Now, of course, yeah, medical students are not a random sample of anybody, but it is being seen as a core skill. And I'd like to see that, again, much more across the piece so that people come through sort of able to deal with numerate data, whether it's going to the sales and working out what 10% off means or whether it's understanding why Facebook or mm. seems to keep coming back with advertisements. You think, oh, that's all a bit strange, just having some idea of what's going on underneath the bonnet. You don't need to understand the details, but you do need to understand how data is being used so that you can decide whether you want to sort of be part of it or whether you don't. Yes, absolutely. I think, so that kind of feeds into ideas, uh, things like AI with automatic, yes. I don't know, uh, like credit scoring or something. Yes. And then also things like uh, data ethics, so how your data has been used, which Absolutely. may well be automated. So what, what do you think about these things for the future? Very exciting, but I think the data ethics is a really difficult one because from one perspective, it's kind of my data and I might choose whether to use it or not. It's a bit like I'm a regular blood donor, but I choose whether to give my blood or not. So I like that analogy, but as an epidemiologist, I'm also quite worried because if people choose whether or not their data is used for research purposes, then we've got very patchy data. And so I think I also see it almost more an analogy with taxes, where we all need what taxes provide. We pay in as and when we can, but I can't pick and choose and say, well, I'm only paying my taxes if you build a nice shiny new school down the road from me. It doesn't kind of work like that. And so I think with, with data, and I'm thinking perhaps of health data, which is my world, there is an obligation that if I want to be, if I want to have the best quality treatment and that's the treatment, my data goes in, but then in various ways that needs using, whether it's for planning the services or to do research on. 
Now, individual consent is a very important thing, but there's some areas where that's just not practical. And I think that debate about what data should be used for, who should have access to it, whether that data should only be used by people in the health service or whether it should be already available is a really important one. But essentially, data can be used for the public good, should be, and we just need to make sure that there's enough kind of, and I don't, you know, we're probably moving towards formal governance arrangements to make sure that it's used appropriately but not misused and that it's not exploited, that people don't hive it off and charge a fortune, which means it's not available for other people. Yeah, that's kind of issues of trust, isn't it? Absolutely, it's issues of trust, which of course my predecessor, <coughs> David Spiegelhalter, really did make the theme of his presidency. And they haven't gone away. I mean, it's partly about what makes trustworthy data, what can you, what is it useful for, what is it not? I mean, data is not good or bad in itself. It may be very good for some purposes and not for others. It's also tied in with who you're getting it from, who's using it, who's done that analysis, who's chosen how to present it who's spending it so that the trustworthiness of data is yeah, it's going to get more and more important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of an interesting time. Would, yes. Would, um, so is there anything, what are your hopes uh, for the future then that maybe we haven't talked about on, on your two years as president? Uh, well, the first thing is that it's going frighteningly quickly. I'm yeah. already a quarter of the way through. At a personal level, I'm hoping to meet a lot of fellows of society I've been to talk to some of the local groups and I've got invitations to an awful lot more so I'm really looking forward to that. I mean many of the ones I've spoken to in the past about other things but now I'm going around as president. Um, I'd like to see the society flourish. Its membership societies on the whole aren't doing too well in this day and age but the RSS is holding up and I think it's because there's renewed excitement about what data can do but also that it's not something individually you, you can go away and do on your own, that people both benefit from the RSS, but also want to contribute through it. I think they see what it's doing, the work it's doing, whether it's with politicians, consultations, the fantastic work we're doing with statisticians for society that we're doing with charities. And so I'd like to see the younger, particularly say the younger generation of those who are new at statistics, which doesn't necessarily mean age young, getting involved and both gaining and contributing from the RSS. And anything I can do to promote that, I'd be okay, delighted. Great, great. great. It's, I mean, it's exciting times being statistics. Absolutely. Okay, so I was th thought we'd finish on uh, something. I was reading about the the RSS won an award recently for a, kind of a competition they do every year, the past few years, on statistics of the year. Yes. And I wondered if you had uh, like a favourite statistic. Uh, put you on the spot. Well, first of all, going back, what the RSS used to have in its newsletter was something called Forsooth, which was when we kind of mocked bad use of statistics. And that was funny and we all had a laugh at it. But actually, things like Statistics of the Year, which is promoting the good use of statistics, are absolutely fabulous. And actually, uh, tomorrow night I'm going along to present awards on statistical excellence in journalism and statistical excellence in official statistics. And I can't tell you what the winners are yet, <laughs> um, but it'll be available on our website. But you know, they are fabulous. Uh -huh. The statistic of a year is really nice because what it does is to highlight really important things. And so actually last year's, which just highlighted the proportion of recyclable plastic that wasn't recycled, just makes such an important point. I mean, mm. yeah, I think I'd go with last year's committee and okay. use that one. <laughs> so they'll be happy with that. Okay then, well, it just leaves me to say thank you very much for your time. It's been fascinating talking to you. And all the best. 
And thank you, Nathan. Right, Lovely thank you. to talk about it. <laughs>